Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you have the tools to think about the big questions when bringing faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Hope that you have a blessed weekend. You can catch us here each Saturday on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m., but if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find the Bridge Builder podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major in- issues impacting how our, we live our faith in public life. We'll also answer your questions. You can email them to us through our mailbag segment, show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org, or contest, contact us on Facebook Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can become a missionary disciple by bringing the faith into public life. And speaking of missionaries, across the country we're seeing incidents of the removal of monuments and art that often depict some of the earliest Catholic missionaries to America. One sees this in uh, the move uh, in some places in California and by the state of California to remove some monuments to Father Junipero Serra, who was recently canonized by Pope Francis. Missionaries, in some way, have become public enemies, but too often there seems to be a lack of historical understanding of the role these missionaries played in bringing the gospel to new peoples. Joining us on the line from Princeton, New Jersey, is Dr. Bronwyn McShay. She is an associate research scholar with Princeton's University's James Madison program and the author of a fascinating new book, Apostles of Empire, the Jesuits and New France. She also writes articles, essays, and publishes her work in historical journals on contemporary Catholicism, society, and culture. She holds a doctorate in early modern history from Yale University and a master's in theological studies from Harvard Divinity School. She's really upping the brain power of the Bridge Builder program today. Welcome, Dr. McShay. It's great to have you. Delighted to be here, Jason. Thank you. What motivated you to write a book about the Jesuit missions in New France? It seems that one would think there'd already be plenty of uh, literature on this subject. What compelled you to delve into that topic? Yeah, there was. I, I was When I was in graduate school, I, I had grown up familiar as a Catholic with the North American martyrs, the sort of heroizing stories of Isaac Jogues, Jean de Berbeuf. And in graduate school, I was given a kind of rather different look at, at uh, not just the Jesuit mission to Canada, but other missions in the Americas um, focused on their relationship to imperialism and, you know, different types of scholarly discussions about um, some of the more negative uh, aspects of, of mission history. And there was sort of a gap, and I, I kind of wanted to understand the, the full story. And I, I guess the thing that just interested me as a historian, not necessarily, you know, of wide interest per se, I, I read some of the early Jesuit sources, and I realized how sort of culturally French these men were. And I, as a sort of growing up Catholic in North America, without much understanding of the French background, I I, I realized that some of the literature was sort of missing a kind of transatlantic point of view on the mission, the understanding of the mission as kind of a a very French enterprise as well as a North American enterprise. And so I, I, I got this idea in my head. I wanted to kind of tell the fuller story and put put stories like the, the martyrdoms of Joes and Burgos and at some of the other more challenging issues like the missionaries' involvement um, in some of the Iroquois wars and things like that in, into kind of a larger picture and tell the story kind of three-dimensionally um, 
you know, but bringing to bear um, my appreciation, understanding of sort of the Catholic point of view that that these men had and what what, what they were up to. So um, it just sort of grew into a a big project, and and um, and the book's finally out. So <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to see it there. <laughs> So. Well, it's a fascinating tale. Say a little bit about the historian's craft. Uh, how do you go through mm-hmm. uh, working through the various sources, whether it's the primary sources, some of the secondary literature that's been written about this, some of the great chronicles of the past, like Francis Parkman's right. uh, tales mm-hmm. of the uh, missionaries to New France, and then some of the more politicized, uh, for lack of a better term, work, you know, the sort of post-colonial Marxist feminist mm-hmm. critique of the missions, you know, that that whole cottage industry of literature. How does the historian go through constructing a narrative? Say a little bit about the process that you used in, in writing this book. Well, it, it happens piecemeal in graduate school. I mean, this started as a dissertation. So, I mean, I, I worked on some seminar papers where I was reading the primary sources, so the Jesuit the Jesuits had a, a actually a book series, a very publicized mission um, called the Relation de la Nouvelle France or the Jesuit Relations, and they published these books annually in Paris, 1632 to 73, and they're very detailed. They tell stories about what they're up to, the types of Native American communities they're encountering, and they also say a lot about the French colonial venture. Uh, but oddly, um, the, the the mission is sort of better documented and more regularly documented for the early formative decade, so like the mid, early mid-17th century. And as you get into the 18th century, as the missions grow and expand into different places, the, there's a lot of sources I, I've been, I was unable to consult because they're scattered in some archives, but I, I, I tried to get an overall picture of the, the kind of paper trail of the mission. But interspersed with all this, you know, as a grad student and then later writing the book, um, you know, I had to do a lot of reading the older histories. Uh, there's some 19th century histories in French as well as in English. Um, I relied a bit more on the French historians than Parkman, so it's kind of a strong point of view uh, that that kind of I had to sort of get past a bit. Um, he he was not necessarily a fan of the Jesuits or Catholic France in general, and, and that kind of affects his whole the way he tells the story. Um, and so it's it's a challenge of kind of being objective, trying to. Uh, get a sense of what each area of scholarship, including, frankly, some of the feminist Marxist scholarship has some, uh, of the 70s and 80s, has some interesting insights. Um, and you, you put these all together. Uh, some of the more recent work, uh, moving past that, there's a, a scholar named Alan Greer, who uh, wrote a wonderful book about Katiri Tekagwisa and the Jesuits, um, uh, called uh, about St. Katiri, you know, but as a historian, being objective. Anyway, long story short, you sift through all this, you take a lot of notes, and eventually, I mean, the core thing is really to try to, for me, remain as close as possible to the primary text and try to get into the mentality of those writing it and trying to understand what the function of these texts were in their own time, which can sometimes affect what they are reporting. And so there's a lot of moving parts. It's it's a challenge, and I'm sure I didn't do everything perfectly in my book, but um, it kind of grows. It's an organic process, I, I guess, and um, and then trying to weave a narrative thread throughout while you're analyzing the modern scholarship. So it, it's a lot of things to hold together, and that's one reason books like this take a number of years to get done. Um, so, Dr. McShay, what do you mean by calling the missionaries apostles of empire? Say a little bit about mm-hmm. that title. There are two sort of, I, I think, iconic images of the Jesuits, one from the Catholic tradition and one 
from the scholarly tradition uh, writ large. On the Catholic side, uh, you have this image of martyrs like Joves and Brebeuf, um, very single-minded, uh, they're entirely motivated by sort of otherworldly causes, converting souls, and sort of dying for kind of a purely spiritual goal. On the flip side, a lot of the scholars I engage with, they kind of take that in a different direction, and they sort of depicted the Jesuits as kind of using the French colonial project to kind of get to Native Americans. Um, as having, so, so this sort of dichotomy between the French colonial project and, and, and the spiritual mission. I, I, and, and for me, this is sort of using a modern way of thinking, that politics, culture, society is very separate from religious and spiritual goals. And so the more I dug into the sources, the more I realized it's a very complicated story. Even figures like Job's, they were quite devoted to the French colonial project, per se, uh, as sort of patriotic Frenchmen. And the Jesuits, in fact, were kind of proactive empire builders. They, they saw their missions not simply as kind of um, spiritual havens and, and, and places in which to teach Catholic doctrines and, and rituals, which was obviously most important to them, but they also would describe some of the same missions as sort of fortresses for New France. And, and many of the uh, natives in living in these missions, Catholic converts, family members of Catholic converts, were allied with the French militarily. The Jesuits often kind of formed military alliances, trading partnerships through the missions. And so I, I really wanted to tell a fuller story that uh, these Jesuits had a kind of this-worldly end in mind and an otherworldly end in mind and 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 kind of make sure that this mission is not, um, doesn't escape a, a truly historical point of view, which, which uh, oddly I think has been missing even in some of the scholarly discussions um, because of a kind of lack of an ability to kind of talk about the more dynamic relationship between faith, politics, and culture in this time period, uh, which is the sort of Catholic mentality of early modern uh, French people. So, um, so I really mean that they were apostles of the French Empire to some degree, that they were advocating it. Um, they were disappointed over time that the French did not build up a better empire to compete with the Protestant English uh, in, in nearby. Um, they were constantly trying to raise money and, and kind of um, interest in New France and were frustrated when the French didn't necessarily get, get so involved. Um, and they also, uh, in some ways, believed in... Uh, this is an anachronistic, but they believed in something like a civilizing mission, something like the French, in, in modern times, the secularized French empire had this mission civilisatrice, uh, the colonized peoples. And I actually show that, you know, there's actually Catholic Tridentine era roots to this kind of more modern secular idea of a civilizing mission in this early uh, French mission. So that's what I mean by the title. It's a really helpful context and mm-hmm. uh, making connections that uh, people often overlook and mm-hmm. and thinking about the Jesuits and the missionaries, et cetera, et cetera. And some of that is in some mm-hmm. ways reflected even in, in a movie like The Mission, that there's not just a religious impulse, but, you know, teaching people mm-hmm. life skills and building t- towns and communities and trades and things like that. The, the, the Jesuit reductions in Paraguay would be another example of something like that. There's a certain... Yeah, and the Jesuits saw, if I get, they also, they, they, many of the missions, they complicated some of the political, I don't want to get into the political question so much, but the, uh, many Native Americans who joined the missions, they had their own reasons for doing so and for allying with the French, and they were, they very much had agency in this, and they, you know, there were co- conflicts between different Native American groups, and so 
part of the story I tell is not just about the Jesuits, but about, you know, these communities of Catholic convert Native Americans, their family members, and what they were up to. And the Jesuits really saw them in some cases as kind of partners in the civilizing mission. They sometimes saw Native American leaders, sort of chieftains of different communities, as more civilized in some ways than some of the French fur trappers coming over. Um, and, and so they, they, over time, they got alarmed by some of the French influences, and they believed the Christian Native Americans would actually help maintain a certain tone that they wanted to uh, to make sure was, was there on the ground in, in French America. It seems that we try to lump uh, in our historical viewpoints from today's st- standards uh, the whole missionary, the Western colonial experience, and, and make it kind of uh, mm-hmm. one standard narrative, but... Is there any truth to this idea that the French, as it seems that you're arguing, really tried to incorporate uh, Native Americans into Christendom, for example, and that the Anglo uh, experience or the the English experience, the Protestant nations, treated them, the natives, more like Canaanites who had to be driven from the land? Um, is 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 there truth in that kind of distinction between how Catholic, the Catholic colonial experiment played out versus how Protestant countries treated it? There's some truth to that. I, I, I always put an asterisk because uh, it's, it's usually it's always more historically complicated than that. But in general, the French were much more open to intermarriage, for example, with Native Americans um, than the, the English side uh, was formally. Um, I mean, there, there were English missions that were uh, involving Native Americans at, at a leadership level in New England. However, I, I think in general, that kind of more biblical point of view, looking at the wilderness as this kind of uh, in its sort of biblical terms as this dangerous place. You see that a lot of that in the, in the early English sources. On the, on the French side, on the whole, yes, they, in part, they had to be open to alliances with Native Americans because they did not have a strong French presence. So they, they couldn't impose very much. So I, you know, I'm not suggesting they would have harshly imposed it necessarily had they had that. They t- you tend to see, uh, the French being very friendly, wanting to integrate certain Native American communities into New France when possible. Very often, the opposite happened. The French kind of integrate into Native American societies in some ways. Um, but some of the groups, uh, and I talk about this a lot in the book, the Iroquois, especially the Mohawks, um, the Jesuits and other French all talk about them sometimes very explicitly, like the Canaanites. Um, so so this is a context where there's constant warfare between Native groups as well as European groups. And the English and the French struggled to kind of get the Iroquois on their side because they were a very powerful uh, confederation. Some of the Iroquois nations were friendly with the French over time. Others were not. And so this, this is a constant theme of my book, this kind of struggle with Iroquois country and, and the the Jesuits desperately wanted to incorporate. They they admired the Iroquois warriors. They were frustrated that they resisted uh, Catholicism sometimes, and they almost speak of them at times, almost like the the old uh, pre-Christian warriors of Europe. And they 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 sort of had this idea that if they became Catholic, they would become this kind of anchor of of a Catholic civilization as well. So it's it's it's, it's a long story short. It's it's more complicated than that. But yes, there is some truth to that general. Um, description that you gave me. Mm-hmm. Some listeners might be wondering why we're talking about the missions to New <laughs> France in a, and questions related to a show that's... inherently that's, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, well, it is inherently interesting. There's no doubt okay. about it. But um, and I think uh, 
the the connection, especially as questions of identity politics and who are we mm-hmm, as a people, sure. what defines us. Um, mm-hmm. We're seeing all over the country monuments uh, to missionaries, but not just missionaries. George Washington himself, because, well, he was a white slave owner. Um, these missionaries supposedly mistreated people. And in some instances, that's certainly true as well. Uh, we had an instance mm-hmm. here in Minnesota where a prominent painting of Father Louis Hennepin, who was not a Jesuit, but a recollect father from France, right. who had very many of the same attitudes and uh, perspectives that you described the Jesuits having about uh, French uh, the colonial enterprise, civilization, et cetera, et cetera. But it seemed that that movement w- to take that painting down was really about saying this is not who we are. This We can't look to the coming of Christ and the coming of these missionaries as the foundations of our state and that we need to find other foundations because this whole missionary colonial enterprise despoiled these peaceful, uh, eco-friendly, egalitarian native peoples mm. and who, uh, who are just much better than the terrible white people. So how should Catholics look at this missionary enterprise? I think you're doing a nice job of maybe moving us between the Scylla of hagiography and the Charybdis of uh, the hermeneutics <laughs> of suspicion, one might say. So how do, how do we look at this and can we be proud of this missionary enterprise and this history and, and the coming of Christ? but also uh, Western civilization to these lands? Or how, how do we, what do we do with these discussions today? Yeah, I mean, these are very large questions. And as a historian, I, I do get frustrated when I, you know, each, each local instance of, of, of one of, the, of these, you know, wanting to take statues down, paintings down, there's always kind of local dynamics at work that, um, you know, you need to account for the points of view of different people in, in the locality especially. But as a historian, I... I just get nervous about this idea of erasing history, even even difficult history or challenging history. Um, and I I feel like when it comes to a question as fundamental as the the kind of historical origins of of a very complicated American you know a, a, a political uh, society and, and and wider society in a, a, a country that has been largely Christian historically, Catholic in many parts. I, it's very crucial to not listen to these kind of polemical descriptions that really they don't really get at the heart of the historical complexity, the humanity on all sides of these questions. And I, I, I just as a historian feel like my role is to tell the more complicated picture and to make sure that we're not on the one hand just like jumping to demonize any group that's sort of politically inconvenient at the moment, but also not in reaction to that, kind of not ahistorically kind of heroizing people or kind of turning them into kind of icons without really knowing their full story. So um, so I, you can't defend the, the missionaries, uh, the Jesuits of New France, for example, by saying they were purely devoted to spreading the gospel, because that's just not historically true. They were three-dimensional men who were part of a French civilization, and and many of them were quite committed to the French colonial project. So if you're, if you're going to kind of, I don't, as a historian, I don't like kind of taking sides or kind of glorifying any one side, because that, that kind of can get in the way of not telling the, the story accurately. Um, but at the very least, I, I'm, I, I tell people who want to maybe get, get into these questions a little more immediately um, to make sure that if, if they're defending one side or another, that they they really have a deeper sense of the history and not and, and not, not to try to kind of uh, idolize or demonize 
human beings of the past, certainly by group. That That's a very kind of, it's not a helpful uh, thing to do. So um, yeah, I don't know if that's, that's a good answer or not there, but. No, it's, it's, um, it's really enlightening. And, and thank you for mm-hmm. that. One, one more question. We sure. very much have the perspective of post Christendom today. And in fact, one could mm-hmm. argue the second Vatican council, you know, made pains to, to insulate the the missionary enterprise of the church, mm-hmm. the evangel- mm-hmm. evangelical dimension from the rise and fall of particular states, right? And mm-hmm. so, looking at the the enterprise of the F- French Jesuits or uh, the other missionaries seems kind of foreign to us that they'd be tied into a colonial mm-hmm. or right. civilizational power. What it, it's important, I think, to to put ourselves in their shoes and then their think in charitably from their perspective, but what lessons mm-hmm. might they still hold for us today, even in a post-Christendom environment about the missions, um, evangelization, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, recognizing that your bailiwick is a, is a historian, not a theologian of the missions, but sure. what do you, what, you, certainly there's some practical conclusions or suggestions that they may have for us today. Yeah, I mean, practical, I, in general, I would, I would say that Studying a, a group of men in this era, um, one of the lessons is simply to kind of illustrate that there was a time when people maybe had a more integrated sense of themselves and the connection between the spiritual, the religious, and the this-worldly. We're talking about culture, politics, society. Um, in terms of more specific practical goals, I, I'm not sure if I can speak to that, but I, I will say that some of the... Um, at the time the North American martyrs were canonized, 1930, many church leaders were already, this is before Vatican II, they were already moving away from the idea of Christendom. And in some ways, the uh, the timing of the canonization of these martyrs and a lot of the kind of saints' biographies that were written afterwards kind of anachronistically introduced, actually from this 20th century perspective, the separation between the spiritual and religious on one side, and the political, and so the, the sort of French colonial part of the story, I, I don't not deliberately, but it was kind of suppressed in a lot of the the, the the saints' literature because that was sort of an inconvenient part of the story in the 20th century, and so that that is actually one of the one of many reasons I, I wanted to tell the story because I feel like some of the contemporary ways of, of kind of compartmentalizing that even some of our church leaders kind of encourage um, sometimes doesn't always, it, it has a way sometimes of making us look at history not quite accurately. And so as important as these messages are for our time uh, as a historian, I, I feel like we owe it to past generations to tell their story more accurately, especially if we're going to be writing about the saints, because we shouldn't make the saints fit our our point of view. We should learn from them from their point of view in part, you know? Indeed. Dr. McShea, we are grateful for you joining us on the program today. Dr. Bronwyn McShea is Associate Research Scholar with Princeton University's James Madison Program, and she is the author of an exciting new book, at least if you're a historical nerd like me, Apostles of Empire, the Jesuits, and New France. Uh, what a fascinating discussion about the lessons of history, particularly about the missions. Dr. McShea, thanks so much for joining us today on the Bridge Builder Program. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you so much. Take care. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment.
Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Director, Kit Cross, is going to delve into our mailbag and see what questions you have for us this week. So oftentimes when the bishops make a statement on any particular political issue, really no matter what that issue is, we will receive comments from people that are questioning whether statements on policy issues are simply distracting them from their duty to preach the gospel. Oftentimes commenters are telling us that they feel political statements are simply undermining the moral authority of the bishops. So why is it actually so important for them to make these statements on particular policies? Yeah, and that's one of the objections we hear is that um, by participating in politics, you kind of sully the church and get involved in a dirty business like politics, or you distract from the main message, which is to help people meet Jesus. So why are we doing this political thing? And it's important to keep in mind what politics is. It's not an imposition through power by one party uh, over another. It is a method of service, and as Pope Francis says, one of the highest forms of charity because it serves the common good. It is a public conversation about how we order our lives together. And in that public conversation, uh, it's important that the church has a perspective. And Dr. McShay, in our earlier segment, highlighted the importance of not necessarily separating the spiritual and the religious from the temporal goods. And that's what we're called to do, is bring our perspective about what serves human beings and their well-being and their dignity into this life. Remember that when the bishops speak about politics, they're doing so often as teachers and trying to help people translate uh, the gospel and Catholic social teaching into concrete solutions that serve human dignity and the common good. And that they are pastors, not just of Catholics, but all the souls in their diocese. They have a responsibility as shepherds to care for the well-being of every soul in their diocese. And that means, of course, preaching the gospel, but it also means caring for their well-being and protecting their dignity as well. Our church and our bishops would be a less credible voice in the eyes of many if it weren't speaking out against some of the injustices today. And that's primarily the lens through which um, our public policy positions are formulated through the perspective of human dignity and the preferential option for the poor and the vulnerable, whether that's the unborn, the immigrant, those in difficult socioeconomic circumstances, etc., etc. And so it's a way in which the bishops exercise their pastoral care and solicitude for the well-being of every soul in their diocese, but at the same time, it's also an important way in which we make the gospel more credible. We can do so indeed through our acts of charity and our many ministries, but we can also do through so in word and bringing that prophetic voice into the biggest challenges of our time. And so that's why we speak about these things, not because politics is separate from the gospel or it's just the church playing politics. It's because preaching about the well-being of human persons, protecting the poor and the vulnerable, is part and parcel of the gospel message and our responsibility as Christians because we are our brother's keeper. Great. So we have just another minute. Do you have any practical tips for people to take this week that they could really start bringing their faith into the public life. Oftentimes people don't know where to go to learn about what's going on in the state of Minnesota. Fortunately, we are blessed with one of the very best legislative websites around. And if we want politics to be a public conversation about how we order our lives to come and good, it's important that the public have access to information that they can use 
uh, to make decisions, to become informed. And our good government attitude here in Minnesota has produced a political culture in which we try to get as much information out to people as possible. We have same-day voting registration because we want people to participate in the process, but we also have really good materials accessible online about the legislative process, and that uh, can be found at the state legislature website. You can just Google Minnesota State Legislature and that will come up. You can find out who your representatives are. You can find out about bills. You can sign up for a great little function called My Bills that you can track yourself and they'll send you email updates about what's going on in the process. And that's really useful for bills that the Minnesota Catholic Conference isn't tracking. We have our own bill tracker at mncatholic.org on bills on which Minnesota Catholic Conference has taken positions, but there are thousands of bills on which we haven't, primarily because it's the responsibility of laypersons to engage and bring the gospel into the public square. But you can follow your bills on the state legislature's website, so I really encourage our listeners to check out the Minnesota State Legislature's website and the abundance of resources where you can stay informed about the process, committee hearings, legislators, biographies, etc., etc., That's all the time we have for today, but remember, you or your organization can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. By doing so, you will help others bring the Catholic faith into public life. For sponsorship opportunities, contact our producer, Kit Cross, at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. Remember to send your comments and questions to our mailbag segment at that very same address, show at mncatholic.org, or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Then tune in next week to find out if we include your question or comment. Remember to catch up on any past episodes of our podcast at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll be back again next week with another interesting guest, more of your comments and questions, and new ways for you to bridge the gap between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks very much for tuning in, and have a blessed weekend.